Welcome to Martial Wisdom. Here you can listen to conversations on all kinds of topics related to martial arts. The topic for today's show is the unsolvable training problem, which is how to train for 100% realism and intensity. Before we start, please consider supporting the show. You can subscribe to the Spirit Aikido online program, which currently contains more than 190 videos. Another option is to contribute any amount you like through the PayPal tip jar. Even small contributions are greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, on with the discussion. All right. I want to welcome Sensei Stephen Scott back to the podcast. we got a great uh, discussion today. Uh, in fact, I think this is one of the ones I've been looking forward to the most very recently. So uh, this, the topic is going to be uh, the ultimate or the uh, unsolvable training problem about how can we train for realism without hurting one another in, in training, that 100% intensity and, and risk that's needed. So uh, welcome, Stephen. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Hey, Tristan. Thank you for having me again. Pleasure to be here. A- excellent. Um, well, I guess where we can start is uh, how most people view training for 100% reality. And the first thing I think that's important to acknowledge is there are no uh, soldiers or fighters, professional or, or amateur fighters that train 100% with eye gouging, biting, uh, kicking to the nuts, uh, you know, twisting and ripping limbs. You, that is not a possible way to train. Even Marines, Army, military, they don't train with live rounds, live grenades, yep. real bayonets. They, they don't do that. That's, they, they run into the same problem that, that all martial artists or, or martial combatants face is how do you train for that? Um, so I, I, I wanted to get maybe your, some of your initial thoughts on it and your experience. Yeah, on it's, I think you're absolutely right, Tristan. I, th- I think you're absolutely spot on the ball with that because uh, when people define reality, when people look at martial arts and that type of training or any form of martial training and what they are trying to say is that won't work in reality. That won't work on the street. What they mean is that won't work in their preconceived notion of what reality on any given street is going to be like. And invariably, I think the the ones that are saying that themselves are actually quite insecure in themselves about what they're doing. And seeing something like Aikido just helps bring out that insecurity. Because Aikido, as you've pointed out, is a technical martial art at its core, but it doesn't mean we can't train for reality. But let's just look at reality for a minute. When we think of, and when people talk to me about, you know, what you're doing won't work in real life, I come back to them and say, well, what is real life to you? And they'll give me an answer. And the answers are as varied as everything else, but it comes down to somebody trying to either bash your head off a wall or stab you or do something. At which point I come back to them and say, right, okay, now let's look at this, how you do train for those real situations and I like to bring it back to people and I'd like to come back to this question later which is what makes those who decide what reality is for a real situation what do they perceive as the best training for that and everyone usually comes back to oh it's something like mixed martial arts which is real so I'd like to pocket that for a minute and we'll come back to that later because the question I usually throw at them is is how do you define reality in any given situation There are so many variable factors that come into play whenever we try to engage with reality. We have to look at the environment we're training in. 
We have to look at the time of day this is happening. Is it straight out of, you walk straight out of your work, you walk straight out of school, you're going into a building, you're coming out, you've not got no control over that aspect. You have to look at who it is you're going to be facing. You have to look at why you're going to be in a, a, a real situation in the first place. You have to look at the motive behind why this real situation has happened. I.e., is it someone looking for money? Is it someone looking for jewellery? Is it something who's just out for their jollies? You have to look at factors to do with yourself. Are you physically fit and capable on that particular day, that particular time to take action? Are you with someone else? Will your actions put them in danger? Are you picking your kids up from school and someone asks for your wallet? Are you going to take action? That's reality. You have to look at the rules of engagement that are taking place here, which are usually not agreed unlike other scenarios so when the rules of engagement start kicking in where do you draw the line who's going to stop this if it gets too bad in a real situation as opposed to a dojo or a sports situation we have to look at factors such as the extended engagement contact i.e the weapons that may be brought to bear if you're standing there with your car keys and someone's pointing a gun at you that's pretty real so what you're going to do you know, or, or if you have to have a, a fold-out knife in your back pocket and someone pulls a bowie on you, what are you going to do? Do you feel confident about that? Is that your sense of reality? You know, and very often when it comes to this and you start pointing out all these factors, these are all different aspects. If you cannot control 90% of those factors, you're in the wrong place for a fight or for any type of engagement. Therefore, you need to understand what it means to be working in a system of reality. And that's isn't even talking about the engagement with the environment, the stability of where you're going, the weather conditions, you know, anything like that. We're not even looking at that yet. So when they define reality, most people have it in their mind that, you know, just as we're about to drift off to sleep, most martial artists will run a wee scenario in their head. Sometimes it does happen. I've done it myself oh, yeah. when I was younger. You know, and if, if two guys came at me right now, I'd be like, oh, I'd do that and I'd do that. That's their expectation of reality. It never plays that, that way. You know, mm -hmm. it never works that way. So when it comes down to how we define this aspect of reality and how we take that training, what we want to be looking at is not trying to cover all of those bases because you cannot cover all of those bases in any dojo, any training scenario, anything like that. What we want to do is to look at the effectiveness of what you're doing and how you can apply it to the situation directly in front of you. Now, that may mean taking your dojo outdoors if you want to do that and do some outdoor stuff, but that's a little bit aside to where I want to go with this. When you're looking at that reality, invariably it comes down to not just the intensity, but the focus. And for me, the focus of how you train is the most important thing. You can train gently, you can train fast, you can train slow, you can train full tilt, but unless it has a defined focus and a strength of focus and intent from the temporary aggressor in your scenarios, it's never going to have any kind of reality whatsoever. And that doesn't mean that someone's got to try and knock your head off with a punch, but they've certainly got to drive through and let you feel what that feels like to have a resisted force coming into contact with your body. And I don't mean on the end of your nose, I'm talking about if you're blocking or deflecting or moving or trying to engage with that. It means trying to be actively resistant without being overly resistant. And it also means taking it to the next level, which is you know not just full resistance of training, but uh, full resistance with the key to control the person who's actually defending and take it that way. And you can build these escalations nicely into your training programs. 
but you do have to start at ground level, you know, and this is where something like Aikido becomes very interesting because Aikido itself is pretty much a complete martial art. It has gaps. There is no perfect martial art. It has gaps, but as it functions for the most part, it ticks most of the boxes. It has throws, it has ground controls, uh, it has uh, defensive movements, it has turning movements. In fact, it has some turning movements that you don't really find in many other martial arts, and that's one of Aikido's greatest strengths, which is something I like to put on the side burner as well. And uh, it has perceptual awareness, situational awareness training, if instructors choose to do that. And that's what I would like to see people do more of, is starting to engage not just with the technical side, but with the psychology of conflict and the the interconnectivity between not just overly passive uke and tori movements, but just putting in a little bit more resistance training. Sure. For that you know, I, I wanted to, as you were going there, a couple of ideas came to mind and I want to touch on the UK one. Uh, but before that, you know, I just saw a video of, the, I guess, BJ Penn, who is a champion, former champion MMA fighter, got into a street fight and got knocked cold on the second mm. blow. And this relates to what I wanted to bring up with Uke's, and that is if you're going to prepare to face, let's say we could call it an enemy or an attacker, it seems important like you want to have your, your simulated attacker be, attack you as, as close to what you want to train against as possible. And in, in Penn's case, he had a, a guy, kind of a chubby guy without a shirt on, just flailing, swinging, swinging away at him. And just like you'd see in any uh, surveillance video of any bar fight or street fight it's just fists flailing away and the second one caught him right on the button and knocked him completely cold and this mm -hmm. is a former champion mma fighter um so the idea that you know and he had tremendous technical ability there's no no question about that but like you said he was not prepared for an engagement yeah. in in a in a real life situation he never really turned it on in fact well, I guess he kind of did. There was something kind of funny in the video where the guy took a, an overhand right swing. He hit him at Penn in the head, and Penn basically had his hands kind of not really up, but he said, hit me again. And then the left one came over, caught him right on the jaw, knocked him out cold. So just to say, well, the better technical fighter will prevail. Therefore, we want to pursue ourselves to be better technical martial artists. Therefore, we will win is a faulty formula at every oh, yeah. point at yeah. every point along the way. And I think with Aikido, the thing that I've noticed in training with many, at many dojos, many organizations, um, even the one that, that I was trained in, it's so easy to fall into having Uke being a little too sterile. There's one oh, yeah. moment of attack. There's a, a, it's well telegraphed. It's, there's no intent behind it. There are very few uh, variety of attacks and the ones that you have a highest chance of facing in reality are not part of the training curriculum at all. And I think if there's a first step, that would be it to say, okay, we wanna at least train our ukes to be that swinging flailing guy that's gonna try to just punch you in the head mm -hmm. because that is a good chance of what you're gonna run across. In fact, I've just started with some brand new students and I'm, I wanna introduce them to, okay, when it's your turn to be uke, you need to have intent. You have to really try to hit somebody, not just throw an arm out and, hit and stay there while somebody else performs technique. Uh, mm -hmm. To me, that's that first building block step towards training for realities to train UKs to be attacked for real. 
And initially it will be only one attack, but I don't think it should wait in the training cycle to start saying there will be a follow-up. There will be another, another type of attack and it could be clumsy too. I, I've noticed in a lot of uh, surveillance videos, the real attack isn't the fist as much as it is the body hurling in behind it. You can, yeah. you can, you can dodge the fist and then get tackled or, or tumble to the ground because, you know, it's like two, two puppies, you know, tripping over each other. Like it happens like that all the time. So yeah. I I've started describing to my students, like you have to appreciate there's more than one weapon coming at you. There's the Absolutely. body and then yeah. there's, there's the fist or the arm or the leg or whatever it is. You can't discount one and only deal with the other. So, um, but yeah, I think that the, the sharpening up Uke's skills and making their attack more realistic, I think is important. And a really good Uke can do the same kind of flailing, highly intense attack at a slower speed so that their Nage, if their Nage is newer, they can learn. They're not going to overwhelm them with intensity. Yeah. Um, what would you think about, about that? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And what I do, Tristan, is uh, when I'm... Uh, when I'm teaching, I, from about, what, I'm trying to even remember, some, it, it depends on the level of capability of the student, but usually from about second, third belt, maybe orange belt onwards, you know, seventh queue onwards, mm -hmm. uh, we never deal with one attack. We always do one, two, three move combos. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're doing Ikkyo on the left, it would be a right hook followed by a left cross. And it's the left cross you're going to take for Ikkyo. The right hook, you're just trying to get a deflection or a body movement and away from. And as they turn to perform the left cross, that's you've got an, a, a utilizable tool. And that's your body movement that will be used for that. The body movement gets you away from the right hook. And then when the left cross comes in, you can take that and use it. Sometimes we do more than that. Sometimes we throw in the odd grab, knee, elbow type training as you go higher up the grades. And it's not there to take it out of its traditional context. But what I do do, that I haven't seen a lot of people do, and I would advocate this because it's good, it's good fun as well, is before you teach your student, show Minucci, Yoko Minucci, all of these weird things, because as soon as you put a student's hand in like this, and like this, they immediately look at it and start to seize up because it's, it's alien. Mm -hmm. Go with the slap. Everyone knows how to slap. And they can slap with a good degree of accuracy. It happened to me last week. We we're training outdoors. New fella. I said, right, you're going to slap me. And I went, okay. <laughs> That's exactly how easy it is to get hit in the face. <laughs> in my head, I'm going, oh, you little biscuit. Uh, <laughs> but it was beautiful. And I was laughing. Oh, yeah. and everybody went into an uproar. And I was like, yeah, okay. Because I was just like, you're going to slap me. Whack. And he didn't even think about it. He just did it. Sure. And nice. it was great, you know, and it, it, it was a junior's class. The guy's only 14, you know, he just slammed me across the face and I'm like, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's what I get for asking for it. He didn't even hesitate yeah. because it's such a, such a natural thing to do. And everyone doubts these types of motions, like slaps and all those kind of things. But I'll tell you, if you ever watch that Russian slap competition they do. Yes, I've seen amount, those. A fair amount of power goes into that. And trust me, <laughs> yep. a 14-year-old can hit you pretty hard with a slap. Trust me. <laughs> Absolutely, yep. And um, we start with that because it's a known movement. And before mm -hmm. you start giving your students awkward movements, you know, this is my washizuki. Oh, mm -hmm. isn't that beautiful? Well, no, not really, because nobody's going to do that. Um, 
before we start doing that, let's stick to what they can do. And that's what we do. We, I work with the students. Have you ever done anything before? Have you, have you got any experience in this? Have you done anything? You know, shoot right, slap my hand, bang. Okay, that's how you're going to attack for the next couple of weeks. Forget about all this fancy stuff that you see everyone else doing. You focus on that because rather than me trying to retrain them into some way of being able to use this, I want them to leave from lesson one with something useful, even if it's something that they know how to do, but we help them do it better, you know, get their body weight behind the slap, a little bit of heavy arm, heavy body and the hand and working on that kind of thing. But what that it's means funny is- funny that you do that because I've started teaching my students uh, basic uh, striking mechanics, punching mechanics, yeah. the bone strikes, uh, all of that stuff. I started doing and actually put it on my first belt test, like about a year, two years, I don't know, time's passed a lot. It's like two, three years ago now. And students really like it, you know, and I'll tell them like, just because we're, we have an art that is not designed for hard hitting, that doesn't mean that you guys as martial artists, I don't want to have you know how to hit hard. To me, if yeah. you are martial artist, martial artist worth your salt, you know how to hit hard. You don't have to do mm -hmm. it, but you have to know how to do it. And you Absolutely. have to know how to spot somebody that knows how to do it. Yeah. And that's the, that's the important part is you see now, when you train against somebody that will show you what a shifting body is, that should be a danger flag. And that will be the trigger you're looking for to, to start your movement, mm -hmm. to see when somebody uses those mechanics against you. Um, I think it's important and they, they, they take right to it, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tell all my students, it doesn't matter what weight you are, you know, and I, I, it doesn't matter how heavy you are. If you can get that transfer of weight onto the end of your slap or your attack, it doesn't matter what the attack is. You know, we as human beings, we're not made for these linear punches, really. We can Correct. generate a lot of power, no. but it requires a lot of technical skill. Mm -hmm. You know, however, we're made for stamping and we're made for slapping and whacking, you know, yep. and that's where I start with students because it allows them that's to... That's a great place to start. It is because it's, it's simple things we do anyway, you, you know, and I'm not talking mm -hmm. about stamping on toes and slapping them in the face. I'm talking about in the dojo element here where I want to give my more senior students something to think about so they're all great practicing straight showman strikes and yokomen strikes and ski mm -hmm. into lovely beautiful big coated geishas and then somebody comes up and slaps them and it just gives me joy to watch that <laughs> the funniest yeah. thing ever you know usually because i'm standing there with a palm mark on my face yep. <laughs> as well yeah. also it allows you to train relatively safely because mm -hmm. if someone gets hit they're only getting hit with a slap Right. You know, so it allows you to ramp up the intensity a little. So mm -hmm. it's a safer way to train, but also it's it's less formulaic. Now, mm -hmm. we, I know from the, I, I know the Aikido purists are going to be going, <gasps> you can't do that. Well, yeah, what well, you can. Uh, but at the end of the day, we can't neglect the technical aspect, i.e. the shomenuchi is a balking cut. And when you're mm -hmm. practicing balking, you're practicing shomenuchi. But what also I like to see come across is look beyond the basic movements. Mm -hmm. I've been to a lot of dojo and I hear them talking about shomenuchi this, this is shomenuchi and you attack like that. And I say, yeah, but what about the shomenuchi defense? And they look at me blank and I'm saying, by teaching your students how to do a proper shomenuchi, you're actually teaching them the first deflection by lifting the arm. That's a deflection movement. It's not about the attack. And I see a light go on in some of them. And they're like, I never thought of that, that lifting the sword, you're actually deflecting using the outside of your arm. You're doing a defense, but you're perfectly framing your head with a defensive movement. So going from balking to here, 
you're effectively learning to cage your head to defend against it, which is a perfect defense against the slap. So the first thing my students get is, here's the first couple of blocking movements, straight up and down, there's your defense right there. Practice that 100 times, I'll come back and get you. Right, slap him and defend, and he just raises his arm and he's got his defense. And mm -hmm. people walk away from their first lesson thinking, that's really cool. I can do the attacks and we can do the defense. And if it's the kids' class, you see them all standing outside in the car park, trying to slap each other, waiting on their parents coming. And mm -hmm. it changes the concept of trying to learn something. Now, we've all seen this before because you suddenly tell someone, right, you're going to strike Shomenuchi to the top of the head. And they do that and they immediately seize up. And then mm -hmm. it becomes this big mechanical ugh, cut because they've not yet learned to relax the shoulders, use the trapezius muscles to draw the arm back and use the tricep muscles to bring the arm forward and cut. They've not learned any of this, how to project through the, through the tegatana. They've not learned how to move the body properly. And more importantly, their feet and their hands are now discombobulated because they're now doing something that's alien that they've never done before. The same as when you give someone a blocking and tell them to take three steps and cut on every step. You know, I've, you know, I've seen people struggle with that for years because as soon as you give them something that changes their perspective on where their physical body ends, i.e. the extension through a blocking or a jaw, they lose contact in the mind with the feet and the hips. We've all seen this. Every instructor has seen this. To bring it back into that realism aspect, give your students things. And this is where it comes on to the instructors. Give your, instu give your students things that they can do. Don't suddenly throw them into a world of can't do. Mm -hmm. then start to merge the two so that all these strikes and slaps you know it, actually I was going to say it may not win a fight in the street but it actually could because mm -hmm. a strike can just as easily become a plant which mm -hmm. with proper focus and intention with the body behind it could just as easily be used to push somebody you know yeah. that's attacking even, you even maybe. with a slap if you slide the hand up and use the bone strike to the jaw yeah that's and that's you use yeah. a heavy yeah. hand you can knock somebody cold with that I mean, it's... You've got different strikes there. You've got Tesho, you've got high toss. You've got all these mm -hmm. different little strikes that you can do. But mm -hmm. what I want to tell them is, it doesn't matter how big you are. If, if I had to say to someone, would you stand there while I swing a bag with one, with a, what's that, a six kilo of sand and it's seven kilos of sand, I'm going to swing that at your head and you're going to stand there and let me hit you. Most folk will be like, mm, no. But when you strike, when you learn to get your body weight behind it, if you can get six stone, if you're only six stone in weight, if you can get half of that, if you can get three stone behind the weight of your strike, that's, mm -hmm. that's the same as getting hit with three times that. Yep. And it's about starting to let your students understand how they can bring these skills. This is reality. Bring these skills into a situation where, where they can't control every element. If they are forced into a position to do something, they can do something that's comfortable rather than trying to adopt a stance adopt a posture, you know, give the old three warnings thing that everybody used to talk about back in the 80s, you know, when I did karate, when I started karate back in the early 80s, you know, you've got to give them three warnings, you've got to get into a stance and stand there, tell them you do karate and give them three warnings. Okay, okay, yeah, that's going to happen. Yeah. You, you, you know, there's this whole kind of, let's lose all the, all the faff and all the fluff behind us, and when we go to train for I try to avoid using the term reality. I try to use the term applicability. We want to be able to apply what we are teaching and what we are learning in the dojo. And by applying it in those fashions, it makes it more accessible for the majority of your students. And it's something that they can immediately bring to use 
You know, it doesn't matter if you've, if you've got a wee, you know, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, what, 70 pound female in the class, but she can hit with 35 pounds of force behind her hand. You know, even if it's only a slap, that's going to get her a good couple of seconds to get the hell out of Dodge. Yep, absolutely. And uh, I've found that that you, if you segment the, the form from the power and the intensity, and then you introduce the control part, you can sort of juggle around. For example, like with the slap, I like having a like a Muay Thai pad or a heavy pad so mm -hmm. students can practice. Once I show them the form, like here's how you connect the body movement to the slap so you can deliver power, you go for penetration, how you want to land the hand on the target. Hit the pad with power, just you know, use that to study the form. Now with one another, we put the pads down. Now we're going to practice control. You want the same form, but you back the intensity way down. So now you can see the actual target. You can track it, the person as they move, you follow through, and that's where you want to shoot for the control. But you don't just unleash 100% intensity on a, on a training partner. No, no, you don't. Jack them in the draw. They're like, they're, that's ridiculous. But if you train each of the, those components in the, the realm that you can train them safely, then they can be put together and putting them together once you have good form that's reliable your body clicks in and it just it does it every time it can do it with power but you can also do it with control and this is to me where uh i like my aikido with my students going where they can do full power if they want they can do half power if they want if they only need 20 percent, they can do 20 percent. and the great part about a slap is you get the head to turn that's the Absolutely. control of, of Kazusha of it's not about how blast how hard you blast the jaw or the face. It's really about how you control the skeleton. So yeah. now you've got the form to do it. You the intensity is you're you've got the control to apply whatever you need. And in training, we're going to apply less than we would be causing damage. Mm -hmm. But the targeting is there, the, the body, the form is there. And that's a big part is the targeting, mm -hmm. making sure that yeah. hand goes right where you want it to it's go. It's got to go where it's got to go. And the intensity is there. You can keep the intensity right. and the focus there, but you don't mm -hmm. have to be breaking each other's jaws and faces and arms. Right. And it's, that's the important thing is it's about training with that focus and intensity towards mm -hmm. understanding that this is how much power I can bring to bear. And that, that aspect of focusing on the control side of things is absolutely vital for that because it's when you're undertaking these movements for example tenshinage tenshinage applies itself great for the pushing hand that's the next stage i go to i know ikkyo technically first principle because it's got all the technical skills in there mm -hmm. but uh, when it comes to the, the technique i usually teach new students and newer students all the time is tenshinage because it's, it's oh, I love once, tenshinage for that yeah it's at once an applied lock arm control arm bar mm -hmm. and strike all mm -hmm. at the same time if you want it to be and it's easy to see where the one hand down one hand up comes in mm -hmm. then okay somebody's going to take a, a movement at you right you're going to rather than going straight down you're going to rotate the arm and lock the arm into an arm bar now you're going to push the face okay now you're going to strike the face and practice the arm bar and you practice mm -hmm. all the different permutations Sometimes tenshinage becomes shi tennage, where the strike goes in marginally first, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and things like that. Now you've got to work on the foot movement, the placement. And tenshinage, when you look at it, starts to get very similar to some of the straightforward aspects of judo, like osotogare, where once you've got mm -hmm. them in that position, if they're not going, you can take the leg. And it mm -hmm. gives people something to focus on rather than the, the biggest barrier to allowing your students to act 
for a situation they may require. It's where you get focused on, as you said, the small technicalities of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I love doing te- I love technical training. I can spend years doing technical training in my bubble and never come out of it. I, I love it. Yeah. But I also love the applied training. And I love Absolutely. the applied training because you can they, see they really go training. hand in hand. Like they're they're necessary. They're intertwined. Yeah. You can they you can do one or the other, but if you ignore one, the other one will suffer. Absolutely. And that's where Aikido is right now. There's not mm-hmm. enough applied that you see being done because mm-hmm. the applied, this is going to sound terrible, but it's just my experience of this. The applied requires the instructors to step out of their comfort zone, admit mm-hmm. that what they're doing for the most part is technical, mm-hmm. and then look at themselves and say, how can I apply what I'm doing? And how can I teach that to my students so that it becomes something of value to them if they ever had to use this in some way? And that also includes looking at how you as an instructor tell your students to deal with problems, how you treat your students, the philosophy behind the Aikido that you bring to bear. Mm You know, because everyone thinks Aikido is a harm, it's about the art of peace and harmony and all this kind of thing. It mm-hmm. is, but there's many ways to harmony. You know, yeah. if I find myself in a situation where I have to make that hard choice, whereby I have to cause serious damage to someone to keep them down, to stop them getting up, who may cause even more damage to me, then that is the path of least evil. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I will do. And I don't care if that involves taking a brick and hitting him across the face with it. He can harmonise his face with the edge of this bit of brownstone. Like, <laughs> you know, hey, it's all peace and love. Love and light. <laughs> the ground. Love and light. And it, but at the end of the day, you know, if this guy had, had, had a blade or something and forces me into action and that's what I choose to do, it's about learning to live with the consequences of those actions and about mm-hmm. understanding that what you do will have a, a, a consequence if you take it beyond what's required you, you know and that's reality training and it's important that we, we get that across to the students as well we can all practice in the dojo until we are you know blue in the face you know right. unable to breathe sweat dripping down is totally you know hyperventilating unable to get a breath but at the end of the day you know most fights are over in seconds mm-hmm you know, the only time cardio becomes an issue is when you drop someone and his five mates come out the bar and you're like, <laughs> exit stage, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's when cardio becomes an issue. That's when I start to feel. <laughs> That's why I've got yeah. to do what I do because my cardio is awful. Um, <laughs> you know, and you bring up a, a really good point about the, the transition from uh, the technical study to the applied study. And then I think this is where... Um, I hear a lot of people question the, well, how would this work in, in reality? And I, I've got a story from one of my students uh, who many years ago, he was he's retired now, but <clears throat> he was a, a SWAT officer, a special weapons police officer. Um, and we had been working on Tenshinage. And I, I like that this is the perfect example of why I love Tenshinage and teaching it right from the get-go. And we'd boiled down to what I found is the, the handiest and most reliable ways of getting somebody from vertical to horizontal with, with Tenshinage. And in in one of the technical aspects I, I stole from Yamada, let's say, where you mm-hmm. use the hips to drive somebody off their feet. And um, this student of mine, uh, he was probably intermediate by that point. Uh, I think he was blue, uh, purple belt or so. And he went to a training uh, 
session up at uh, it was an outdoor one where they set up the cardboard walls and they have a mm -hmm. big tower and they're shooting you know simunition paintball shots out of their pistols and whatnot and you know he was sweeping this house and he comes through with his pistol and and there's this guy big much bigger than he was younger stronger and he was had his bare hands open and my student charged for forward uh put his pistol in his holster and walked by him and did attention it was quick but this guy he was looking around for the second person that actually took him down because he could not believe <laughs> that he was yeah. taken down so fast without it feeling like he was wrestled to the ground because he's like mm -hmm. this guy i've got him you know i got him bare hands and he's charging me and thought and then he's suddenly on his, on his back and mm -hmm. i still remember my student coming back he says boy that tensionage that works great you know i it, mm -hmm. he didn't even start by grabbing me i just went past him and and uh use that hip and it just he was yeah. the next thing i saw was his feet and he was on mm -hmm. his back and he didn't even know it and um and he said that the examiners were they said they were shocked and impressed about how fast he got taken down yeah. and but so few people get an experience like that where there was no dojo environment this was a in this case it was a training environment but the intensity was very high and and you know there was no expectation of the person you know had no idea what was about to happen and it worked beautifully like he said this was textbook i couldn't have asked for a better <laughs> a better outcome mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know and and sadly you know unlike sport fights which are filmed and we can watch videos a lot of this stuff that happens there is no video of or, or there's very very little to for us to study and make you know a case on youtube for for how these things work in mm -hmm. application but the, the testament of people who have done it whether they're you know bouncers security police officers you know even through intense training examples like that especially with somebody who was not an aikidoka he had no idea what mm -hmm. what my student was capable of doing how it actually happens that way you know there's many yep. of these these stories that that have come out but it's not as compelling as you know watching a a uh, championship fight or, or something of that nature or a movie you know people expecting mm -hmm. to be john wick or, or something of that nature because mm -hmm. that's you know what they see they want it to look like that or they want their aikido to look like you know steven seagal or, or something like that um you know from the movies with the choreographed fight yeah, scenes yeah. So lovely, very dramatic yeah. but you know it's uh but to me that reality part is 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 the the the, the holy grail that we're seeking and to get yeah. as close as we can to in our training to be effective for when that happens and so mm -hmm. um and you know you you've kind of brought up something now that i'm going to bring back out the bag which was uh, I, I got a lot of people now one of my best students right now uh started with me several years ago you know, maybe, maybe not i'm not telling he's my best student because he's, he's not but he's uh i just don't want him getting too big for his boots uh he's a, <laughs> he's a good student incredibly loyal but he came from a cage fighting and mma background Mm -hmm. And he'd heard about it, heard it was rubbish, and he came in, and perhaps it was because of the way I teach, maybe the way I train, maybe the different stuff we do, but he got hooked in it, and he loves it now. Mm -hmm. uh, and he still keeps up his boxing training, he still keeps up his Muay Thai training, you know, and if I want someone to try and slice me in half with a, with a leg or an elbow uh, when I'm showing classes, this is the guy I bring out the bag, because I know if I don't do this properly, they're going to be waking me up with a bucket of ice water about 20 minutes later. <laughs> And I have told them if that ever happens, it better bloody not be there when I wake up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you 
<laughs> this angry guy with a bulge on his head chasing someone down the street <laughs> yep, in a yep. car. Um, but uh, yeah, when it, it, it comes to that type of training, what we've got to remember is everyone is now looking to the kind of mixed martial arts and things as this is as close to reality as you'll get. Now, let's just burst this bubble wide open, and I don't mind doing that right now. Mm-hmm. All MMA fights, short of spontaneous, uncontrolled fights, underground fights, you know, bare knuckle stuff that does happen. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but even in the UK, bare knuckle boxing is not illegal in the UK, but you get like three months lead into it. You know, it's it's rare to just get underground bare knuckle clubs that that that, that occur nowadays. I dare say they're still there, not but the same in the states. You know, that's real fighting. Those guys don't know what they're getting into. Okay, so let's move all the underground, you know, dark web, <laughs> you know, crazy yeah. stuff aside. Fight club, just like we were talking about earlier. Put all that aside. That's for the people that are involved in that lifestyle. That's a lifestyle choice. You know. When we look at things like MMA bouts, particularly ones that end up on television, when we look at the fracas, like the Logan Paul, Floyd Mayweather thing that just happened, right? even professional boxing, you're entering a ring and a fight where you have got several months lead-in time. You've got time to check out your opponent's form, look at the previous fights, check out their strengths and weaknesses. You've got months to prepare for your fight physically and mentally, more importantly. And to you're form entering your own a control, plan. Form your own plan, yeah. You're entering a controlled environment. Environment. You're entering a dangerous environment, but you're agreeing the rules of engagement because there are rules to the system. It's mm-hmm. violent, but it's an agreed level of violence. You should not be experiencing anything over and above what you yourself would be anticipating to give out. It's an agreed level of violence. That's really important because that changes your mindset. You know you may hurt them permanently and they may hurt you permanently, but if you can live with that situation scenario as part of your sport, then that's how it goes, same as in boxing. You understand the environment you're moving into. You're in control of the date effectively because you could change the date if you're suddenly unwell. You can control the time if something happened. You know, for the most part, these things are mutable. You have a lot of control over this supposed realistic environment and you have safeguards in place someone is going to step in and stop the fight if your life is in danger that does not and, sound and realistic. Your, your chances are your weight classes are the same you're oh, roughly yes, around the same that. skill yes, level the the person you're fighting <clears throat> is going to be roughly the same weight category roughly the same level of skill and will have you, you know investigated you just as much as you've investigated them mm-hmm. and so that is by no means, no, don't get me wrong. These guys are tremendous athletes, Absolutely really good they are. for the yep. most part, tremendous athletes, for the most part, really good fighters. Mm-hmm. But they tend to be jack of all trades, mostly master of none, except for a few who have been mm-hmm. absolute legends in the MMA environment. But that is not a real scenario, that is not a real environment. Anyone who thinks that MMA is as close as you'll get to a real fight. You need to take stop, take a good long hard look at what the world's actually like just now. It's nothing you know, like that environment. And you, and you you had a really great list, but I think you missed the biggest one, and that is they both know when the fight starts exactly. Exactly. It, yes. In yeah, a real a in a real point. situation, the one who chooses to fight and and acts first usually will prevail. That yeah. first strike, while the other person's still confused about, all right, what's am I arguing with somebody? What's happening? 
the ambush, it's it's a it's a huge deal, and that no sport fighter deals with that. Not one yeah. of them. I, I used to get this all the time when I did a lot of competition karate back in my twenties, and we we changed how we fought from time to time. Sometimes it was with pads, sometimes it was without pads. It was a a phase in the UK back in the mid nineties where they took pads out for competitions. It was to discourage strong punches to the head because you'd probably break your hand. So everything mm -hmm. had to be controlled. So there was no pads on the hands at all. The feet were still padded, but you know the shin and instep still had pads, but the hands were not. And you took some serious punishment to the body. You know, all of a sudden, Mawashizuki or uh, a Maiken straight to the chest. <sighs> that hurt, you, you know. But people used to say to me, particularly people at work, how can you do that? I mean, you're, you could get hurt. And you don't think about it. You're like, yeah, but it's part of the sport and I enjoy it. And it's, it's skill against skill. And mm -hmm. I'm watching the guy I'm fighting before we go on and I, I check out his form in previous fights. You know, the first fight's always the hardest because mm -hmm. you don't know who you're facing up against. That was always the hardest one because it was like in a round robin knockout competition, hundred people there, then it's down to 50 people by the next fight. I'm sure they've all seen Karate Kid, they know how this works. Um, and there's and very, it's very thing. rare. In fact, I, I heard that this used to happen more often in the past, but they've really gotten away from it of you don't know who you're going to fight on, on, a, on a given night. Like you just have a pool of fighters together and they randomly pick. Uh, no fighters or managers seem to want to deal with that. They, they, they say, no, no we're not. We, we want to know who, the, who our opponent is well ahead of time so we can yeah. study, form our plan, all that other stuff. Yeah. That's right. And I know rather than turning up and you're facing even Drago, do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> well, you know what I mean? You well, know, you know, actually, and, it, yeah, and you bring up something that I did want to cover within this discussion because this is often um, one of the go tos for, well, how do we train for intensity? And that is, we'll pad up, we'll armor up a fighter or an attacker. They put them either in a red man suit, you know, on the extreme mm -hmm. side, or they'll put a, you know, body pad, headgear on, um, yeah. or some kind of helmet, gloves. Um, and, you know, I know there are different schools of thought of this. I'm not a big fan of those because once you put gear on, you become fearless. And, and if you do get hit or dinged, you can just ignore it and go right through yeah, it. Yeah, it doesn't mean cautious. <laughs> to me, there's always the compromise, the distortions for safety. Either you're going to, have slow down and have more control or you're going to pad up and go 100 intensity and it's going to be kind of different targeting is going to be different of course when it, should you ever get into a fight you're not going to have headgear mouth a mouth guard on gloves mm -hmm. you're probably going to be caught like you're just walking down the street so um that the idea that you train to get used to that that comfort of having the padding to me is is a distortion i don't care for i know some do and there there's some good things that happen but um and, and i do use some uh, glove padding uh just to kind of take away a bit of the fear for for newer students but i find that that getting used to the stress of actual knuckles no safety gear kind of makes you more careful and i want to train my students to be careful cover your head do not get hit it's important so if you get mm -hmm. used to the padding you can get used to kind of oh i can take some shots it's no big deal what are your thoughts on the padding and, and things like that? Yeah, it's I, it, it has a purpose, but I, I do agree with you. What it doesn't do is prepare you for getting hit mm -hmm. uh, because it's, um, unless you're, I, I do some occasional uh, focus pad work for a semi-professional boxer. 
Mm-hmm. And he's fast, but I'm, I'm very fast. My hands very slow with my legs. And uh, I'll wear a body shield as well, which sure. is great conditioning for your torso, let me tell you. And this guy oh, starts yes. doing body shots. Um, and that's one of the good things about it is if, but if I were training with someone who didn't, who couldn't generate the same amount of power as this individual, I would be getting no benefit. It would, I would be thinking that if this guy were to hit me and I wasn't wearing this, there's not that much behind it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't prepare you for it. Um, it's wearing padding, particularly also what we have to remember is padding interferes with your natural body movement. And when you get into a real situation, unless you, you intend to go through the rest of your life looking like the Goodyear blimp, you're not <laughs> going to be walking about with padding on if anything were to happen to you. So it's, mm. or if you were, you're really going to, uh, I mean, you're actually going to incite some violence against you, I think, because people just, people see padding, they just want to punch it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it depends on the circumstance. It depends on the nature of what you're doing. If if you were doing a lot of strikes to the head, there'd be nothing wrong with wearing a head shield and giving someone, you know, maybe some eight ounce boxing gloves or something. But the problem with that is, or MMA gloves, the problem with that is you can't use your thumbs. So if you're attacking and you see an option, or sorry, not an option, an opening with the person you're attacking to also throw in katagatame or a little rokyo elbow lock or something like that, hijishime, and you try and grab them, well, you're immediately, you've gone 10,000 years down the evolutionary scale, because you're, in fact, probably more, because your opposable thumbs are right out the window right now, so you can't <laughs> actually do it. You know, it's, you know, try opening a can of Coke with, with a pair of boxing gloves on and then try and drink it. It doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's you, you, you can lose one of the tools by wearing padding and, unless it's very good stuff. Um, mm-hmm. We find that as well. I never use padding in any of the training. Uh, the exception to that is when I'm doing some of the HEMA stuff. Where you, you know, if, if we upgrade from PU to metal weapons, blunt metal weapons, you have to be armoured for that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you have to. You have to, because otherwise you're in the hospital. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, uh, for just generic training purposes and also something that's applicable to you, you you have to, uh, I think you don't have to be padding. There's also something else, and we also have no hakama days and no gi nights in my classes because uh, my hakama weighs a lot yeah. and it's, it sits nice on the hips and it pulls you down and it's a great training utility, but you need mm-hmm. to learn to work without it. You, 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 you know, it gives you good hip placement. It gives you good focus on dropping your center and getting that proper hip rotation, you know, mm-hmm. through the base of the spine to keep everything focused forward and to keep all your 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 kime in the correct place when you're making attacks and defenses, you know. But um, when you take it off, all of a sudden you feel you feel kind of very naked and exposed, you sure. know, and yeah. uh, it feels different. Your aikido feels different when you. That's why everyone. It does. I've always liked the the hip support. Of the yeah, ties absolutely. and the wrap part, but all boy, my students wear hakama. I don't care what grade you are; everyone wears a hakama because it gives you that support and that groundedness that mm-hmm. lets them work on their foot movement. Don't get me wrong; occasionally they look like giant nappies because I get them to tuck them in so I can see what their feet are doing. Yeah, you know. Yep. But uh, again, that just looks good in photographs. That just that's just one of those small things I do with my students to give me a giggle. Uh, you know, <laughs> put the big nappy exactly, on, but it, but then you start to move without it. And, and it should be like a kind of like a crutch. You don't want to have to rely on crutches all the time. Crutch, no. So and that's where I think you're right. It's you get used yeah. to the body alignment, the correct body alignment, and then you can do it yeah. without the Hakman. That's uh-huh. the, you're, where you're headed. And then when you take away the gi completely and you just train in 
you know, joggers and a t-shirt, it feels even more bizarre. And mm -hmm. you almost have to retrain because particularly in a technical martial art like Aikido, there is a certain level of, I don't want to use the term ritual because that makes people think that we're doing some sort of religious practice. We're mm -hmm. not, we're doing a martial art. But putting on, I was always told when you put on your, your gi, that's you leaving the outside world behind. And you focus on the dojo and your training. When you take off your gi, you step out of the dojo and you can get back into the real world. And it's like a bubble. You enter the training bubble for that period. And that's how I was originally I've trained. I've boxers do the same, look at uh, getting their hands taped up or taping up this their hands, up, putting yeah. gloves on the same way. They start to get into a mindset. That's and it. it. It gets them into the where the yeah. mental zone they should be in. Yeah. Which is another great, another great difference from the list that you had before, which is you walk around a corner, you could be faced with a situation in 12 seconds that's going to turn into a fight. You don't have time to go through your ritual and get into a no, mindset. Or, no, that's what I was going to say. And suddenly you're in an argument or somebody's in your face and now you got to deal with a verbal exchange and to assess, okay, how can I get out of here? Do I have to deal with this guy? Is he going to get physical? You're reading yeah. your opponent, just boom, it can happen quickly one one of my old students he doesn't train anymore due to health reasons uh unfortunately he was he was unfortunately attacked and dropped in seconds because mm -hmm. he was at the bar watching a soccer game i'm using terms everyone will understand here because if, sure, if yeah. we start talking football i'm going to shout go vikings and everybody's going to get confused i'm actually not talking about <laughs> he was watching a soccer game he had six pints watching the game he came out went next door got himself a chicken kebab and a can of cola, walked out the shop. Someone missed a punch. They were thrown at someone, hit him in the face, and down he went. Wow. Mm -hmm. His three mates grabbed him and pulled him aside. Two of them also got assaulted because everyone assumed that my student, Alan, was part of the group that was in the fight. Mm. And it just happened. Right. Now you That's could another say, thing. Ask how many fighters have a pitcher of beer before they compete. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. And that's Zero. what was talking about your physical condition. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. most of us go out, even, you know, Friday lunchtime. I know people that maybe go out for a meal or they, are, they used to before, you, you, mm -hmm. you know, the zombie apocalypse. Um, <laughs> the, you know, when you go out for a meal on a Friday for lunch or you maybe take a client out, you'd maybe have half a glass of wine or half a beer or something with the meal mm -hmm. with the client. That's mm -hmm. going, that immediately impairs you. I don't get, you know, people can claim that they can take all the alcohol and it doesn't affect them, but it's not true. It doesn't period you, you, mm -hmm. you know. So even situations like that, yeah. I, a member of my office was assaulted going into work after he parked his car outside the office in the centre of Glasgow in a, a housing scheme that was adjacent to the office uh, on a case of mistaken identity. And he was pushed into a fence, repeatedly kicked, then the person apologised, helped him up to his feet, brushed him down, said, I'm really sorry about that. I thought you were someone else and walked off. Meanwhile, he's lying. He's standing there. His nose is bleeding. He doesn't know what the hell's happened. You know, it was completely unprovoked. That's reality. That's the type of thing. And that's where the situational awareness aspect comes in. This is where the ma'ai and the focus and the kimi that you learn in traditional martial arts really comes into its own. Now, we can't mm -hmm. be switched on all the time. Mm -hmm. But it's useful to always apply these, you know, situational awareness skills that you learn in the dojo. Uh, and that comes into play even when we don't realise it. You know, when we're doing group work with the Joe or the Balkan or something like that, 
you have to be aware of everyone going on around about you. If you're on a course, 50, 60 people all swinging wooden weapons, you have to keep your wits about you. And when you work in Ninindori, Taninjudori, whatever you want to call it, Sanindori, you know, multiple attacker stuff, that builds your situational awareness. And mm -hmm. that's what I try and get across to my students. We're not teaching you to fight against multiple people. We're teaching you to keep your wits while there's a number of ongoing variables within this controlled environment. And what we're wanting you to do is to not get taken down, control the environment as best you can. There's the door over there. You're over here. You've got to get to that door. And the three of them are in the way. You, you know, they're all under orders. One's told to come in with slaps or takedowns. One's told to try and tackle the legs. You know, one's maybe got a wooden weapon and they're just threatening them with it, trying to hold them off with it, you know. And we run those types of scenarios as well, not for realism, not to teach people how to fight, but to just show you this is how difficult this is. Because this whole one-on-one -on -one scenario is a myth, it's a dream. If you ever get into trouble and it's a one-on-one -on -one scenario, you may as well tick a gift box because the chances of that happening again are minimal. You know, yeah, I'm not sure how, in, from what I've seen in the UK, that happens quite a bit. I know here in the US, fights on on this on a street will gather people instantly and once yeah. they gather they want to see a fight and they'll often get their licks in when they they feel they can get a free shot they'll kick yeah. and stomp and I all that stuff. yeah i mentioned earlier i also do glima which is mm -hmm. uh, scandinavian wrestling and uh, historical mm -hmm. martial arts the rules of glima are simple you engage with your opponent the first one onto the ground while one standing loses because okay. in a real situation that's it as soon as you're mm -hmm. on the ground everyone else piles in that's it and mm -hmm. that's the philosophy and i i bring that into aikido so when we do that type of work it's not designed to make people feel bad about themselves it's designed to hit home that reality of you do not have the comfort of engaging one-on-one -on -one with someone tying them up in knots putting an arm bar on because while you're doing that mm -hmm. <laughs> just this was a fun one i had a, i made a circle of about it was on a course 20 students and I gave two of them, you know, those swimming noodles, those right. long, cool. yeah, yeah. Cool noodle. I, yeah. I gave two of them them and everyone stood with their hands behind their backs. Then one person, one person in the middle and one engager and that engager had to get that individual down onto the ground or vice versa. Mm -hmm. But somewhere along the line, any one of those guys with the swimming noodle could start ladling in. Mm -hmm. They may choose not to, they may choose they will. And so, it added a sense of kind of strange paranoia that someone's trying to defend themselves. They don't know who in the crowd is friendly, if at all. They may have been, they may have not, they may not. And sometimes nobody attacked. Sometimes both come in at the same time. Sometimes only one come in. But it just, it, and it, it was a great thing to do in the course. And everyone loved it because it said, you just appreciate that once that crowd starts to gather, you do not know where the threat assessment stops. Every right. single one of them is a potential threat, depending mm -hmm. on how this situation goes. And people can pop out of nowhere. And they can just come out. Yeah. So it yeah, was a good I mean, exercise in mm -hmm. threat assessment and situational awareness. Mm -hmm. And every single person said, as soon as that circle appeared, I just felt trapped and I, I didn't like it. And it made me feel horrible. And I don't sure. want to find myself in that situation. And that's what it was designed for. It wasn't designed to make people fearful. You know, this is the type of training that I like to do because it, mm -hmm. it takes in as safe a way as possible. By the way, I should point out, I got whacked over the back of the head with a swimming noodle. 
Yep. I got oh yeah. You're not gonna create a, the perfect ninja who is who is impervious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because uh, what they actually did was uh, obviously I was refereeing this, and then when it came to be my turn, mm -hmm. they moved them about. What I didn't realize is the sneaky fatherless children that I train with sometimes, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, they they gave the noodle to the guy that was refereeing the match. Ah, uh, clever. And I wasn't looking for him. Right. And he he oh he he beat me so hard with a yellow swimming noodle. I just remember lying on <laughs> the ground getting beaten <laughs> a pulp with this plastic noodle. It was really yeah. I'm trying not to laugh, but at the same time, uh, my my partner got me into some kind of weird figure four cross leg lock using that nerve at the base of the calf. So it was screaming yeah. and laughing and getting battered about yeah. the head with a noodle. But yeah. again, it just made me aware you can't trust anyone. And that once that mm -hmm. situation kicks off, you can't trust anyone. And everyone learned that day. It was good fun. You, you know, yeah. but at the same time, we all walked away with a great sense of seriousness. For me, this is reality training. It's preparing you for circumstances that you cannot hope to control every aspect of. And yep. even by doing those types of scenarios, by doing that once, you then think, right, okay, this guy's coming on at me. There's a crowd starting to gather. I've got two options here. I either back down mm -hmm. completely or I choose to engage. Mm -hmm. And I can't trust anyone in my environment right now. So where do I go with this? And for me, you know, nine, 99 times out of 100, I'm going to back down. You mm -hmm. know, I've got nothing to prove. Right. You know, I've got yeah, nothing to, to, to prove. Estimate when you have to intercede and when you don't and to make that, that decision. And for people listening, because I've done ex almost exactly the same thing with my students. I've told a student to ambush another one when he wasn't looking. You know, I've done it when I've, I'm overseeing a, like a randori or some kind of an exercise and, and Nage is, you know, moving around really well and then walks right by me and then I'll just put my arm out suddenly because he, he didn't think I was going to be a threat for exactly the same reason that you did. You cannot overlook mm -hmm. anybody at any yeah. time. It just, and it, it's not that you're being a, a jackass instructor or trying to be difficult. What you're doing is forming the mind and the perception and the habits that it will get into when it becomes... Yeah. A stressful situation and this is a subject i wanted to cover with the, with our discussion and this is one of my favorite things to bring out in training which is stress inoculation and again just like the intensity it doesn't mean scaring the daylights out of the students but get them used to people moving fast being aggressive towards them and mm -hmm. you know rushing towards because if somebody it's a different thing for me to stand in front of you at an arm's reach and i reach out and i grab your throat it's another thing for me to come rushing up to you at a sprint and reaching out to grab your throat. Seeing mm -hmm. somebody running at you with intent can suddenly raise your anxiety level. And so getting students used to seeing those things and being like, I know how to get out of the way, I know when to do it, I'm comfortable with this, and to keep their anxiety level low, like that is the point of the stress inoculation part. And that kind of, as we've been talking about these different things, I think in training, they're those are different characteristics that you need to train students on separately. And then as they get comfortable with them separately, you start combining them. So they can operate in a randori, keeping their, their level of calm. They don't let the anxiety come up. Their breathing starts to cut short. They start forgetting about moving their feet and, and moving around. That's how it all starts to thread together. Um, mm -hmm. But you don't do it just by one going 100% intensity all the time uh and i found that even new students white belts like like that they like getting comfortable 
and not being anxious when they see somebody rush at them and try to tackle mm -hmm. them or, or grab them or punch them. And for ones that are really shy initially, I'll just have them hold a pad up and, you know, say, okay, you're going to hold the pad and Uke is going to run at the pad and punch the pad. So they're, you kind of separate themselves from that anxiety. They're not punching you in the head. And it, it, it works. And within, a, you know, just a couple of minutes, you say, okay, now they're going to run up and grab you by the throat. Okay, well, you know, they run up and you step aside. It's just a, a progressive way to get more comfortable with that. Because really, to me, that a good, a superb martial artist, that is the realm that they flourish in. They, they, that's what we're going for. Pure chaos, 100% intensity. It should not be, you're not going to be totally glass calm or, you know, smooth, but you're going to control your fear, control the, the, the anxiety and panic. Yep. You're not going to slip into that heavy adrenalized uh, scramble or the go berserk. You know, you need to control, mm -hmm. make smart decisions. And you can't yep. do that if, you, if you're amped up and, and are frightened. No, absolutely not. Um, and there will be some fear, but you have to control it. Yeah, absolutely, Tristan, I agree. And that's one of the areas where Aikido excels because it's, it's every martial art focuses on breathing. But Aikido, mm -hmm. when you see the practice of kokyu being done mm -hmm. properly, where we are looking to take that breath before action, mm -hmm. you know, that breath isn't just there to get oxygen into your body. It's there to buy that half a second where you can just step yourself into that stage, almost like quickly putting your gi on, and I don't mean in a real sense, but when you're working with a partner and you start practicing kokyu, you're practicing how to interact your breathing with your body movement. Because I remember again, one of the things that used to take people out more often than not in competition fights, and you still see it in boxing, and you still see it in MMA, is they get gassed very quickly. They just start running out of steam. Once you're two, three, four bouts in, you know, uh, it, it, it happens really quick. I see it in Glima as well all the time. You know, within 30 seconds when you're wrestling with someone, and I'm not talking, you know, WWF stuff. I'm talking about proper, like, wrestling, try to take each other to the ground. If you're not careful, you're going to get gassed really quickly. And the bigger Absolutely. guys gas even faster than the smaller guys. You, you, mm -hmm. you, you know, so it, it becomes a balance of tactics and skill and that type of thing. But at the end of the day, in Aikido, we're one of the few martial arts where every movement we do, and that's why I'm a big advocate of the technical aspect of things and the kokyu aspect. And mm -hmm. Because if every movement you do is in line with your breathing, then everything that you attempt has been taken with a good body of air in the body. Your body's not starting to become uh, anaerobic. You're keeping the blood pumping, you're keeping the oxygen going, therefore you're keeping your brain going properly. Mm -hmm. Nothing, your vision shouldn't start to shut down too quickly. You know, everything feels much more active and alive as opposed to <laughs> we start to hyperventilate mm -hmm. and panic. And more often than not, in a, I've been in a couple of real situations. I've only ever had to take action once. And every other time, it's that sense of calmness and keeping calm with myself. And I should say the only time I've ever taken action was back in my karate days. When I started training in Aikido, I suddenly found that I was more able to almost like take a step out of myself for a minute while the escalation phase of the conflict was happening. Mm -hmm. And look at this 
you know, I don't want to say for almost from a vicarious position, almost like a kind of an overseeing body <laughs> looking right. out of myself to then mm-hmm. gauge what was happening. It bought me several moments where I was able to assess the situation and look at really what's going on here. Is it not better to just choose to de-escalate this straight away? And mm-hmm. that's, an, again, that skills we look at, you know, I'm by no means, you know, a psychologist or a sports psychologist or anything like that, but we do try to work in class as well with ways to try and de-escalate situations because not everyone mm-hmm. comes into the martial arts want to be a fighter. Right. You know, and Aikido does attract a lot of people who have had previous trauma. A lot of people mm-hmm. have come to me to train have actually been to other classes and this swings both ways and been treated really badly, mm-hmm. been beaten up, been harassed, you know, in other martial arts because they maybe weren't catching things up fast enough or the class bully boy wasn't being pulled into line by the instructor, mm-hmm. you know. But at, at the same time, not everyone wants to learn to fight and that's something we need to respect in Aikido as well. Sure. Is that, that's why I try and make these reality engagements as engaging and fun as possible because mm-hmm. we keep the fun in the training, even if it's training for not mm-hmm. necessarily the scenario, which is what a lot of people become obsessed with. If someone attacks you mm-hmm. in the street, what are you going to do? Well, your scenario training right now, whereas I'm trying to not train scenarios, I'm trying to train uh, applicability of skills and mindset You know, in a given situation. That will keep you safe more times than do this, do that, do the next thing. Because that right. only works if they do exactly what is in that scenario. And mm-hmm. I've seen guys do, in many different martial arts do that. It happens in BJJ, it happens in Krav, it happens in Karate. I've been there, I've done it, I've taught it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, where this is what you do when someone attacks you. That only works mm-hmm. if that scenario applies. Right. You know, and unless you're going to drill that 100,000 times so that it becomes muscle memory, you don't even have to think about it. Mm-hmm. and then move on to something else, you're not going to capture any small change in that scenario. And the best example of this I can give is, you could scenario train with a front grab, you know. Uh, oh, God. Oh, my. Kido language. Munidori. Munidori. Aye. Munidori, yeah. you take Munidori, that's great. Thank you. I just... <laughs> <laughs> right. what, it what happens. Somebody, what happens when someone grabs it upside down? Mm-hmm. And for a minute you think, oh, and that that oh moment is what's going to get you hit. Yep. Because all you've done is train a scenario from that way. And the first thing is boils my biscuit. That's a Scottish phrase. I just made it up. Um, <laughs> what, 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 what really, you know, bakes my noodle, not my swimming one. It's when people say, oh, you've not grabbed me right. Mm-hmm. Oh, my, oh, oh, don't say that deal with what you've got because that scenario training where you're like, oh, you've grabbed me the wrong way. Oh, sorry. You know, mm-hmm. I like, you know, I like someone going to hit you. Oh, wait, would, would you not hit me in this side, please? Could you hit me in this side? Uh, okay. <laughs> no, this doesn't work. And that's yep. where a lot of the technical martial arts start to fall down because that's what people see. And we, we try to discourage that. Mm-hmm. Another aspect I do with my students is if someone gives you something, take it and use it. I keep those the art of giving. You know, mm-hmm. so when someone gives you something, give them something back. Try mm-hmm. something. You're better to try sure. something, fail it, is tell them mm-hmm. they've attacked you wrong. You, know, you, t- you touched on a really good uh, concept, and I want to I want to cover this before we move on too much. And that is, and this is a crucial to me, and, and that is energy management. Because as <laughs> you said, many fights only last a few seconds. There are some that last 
20, 30, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, five, a few minutes. You don't know how long this is going to go. So you can explode out of the gate and use all kinds of athletics. And, and like you said, gas out. And if that, if that happens, you're done. Like you have nothing left. So to me, that's a, the way to train there is to focus on maximum efficiency, best, smartest choices to avoid having to be, you know, really athletic, but you, you want to stay calm and conserve your energy as much as possible. Let, let your attackers burn themselves out or make them take the long way to get to you make them have to work hard to get to you while you conserve your energy. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, that, you know, you don't see as much of in sport fighting because they want exciting fights. They want high intensity. Yep. Those guys are highly trained, very, very fit. Uh, but yeah. they also have a defined amount of time that that fight is going to be. And they train for that time. Yeah. It might be over sooner than that, but they never, you don't, you can't bank on it. You know, you yeah. have to train to be oh. in your, you know, three minute rounds or a 20 minute fight or whatever it's going to be, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I remember seeing a study, uh, some gentleman had put together, uh, like he collected hundreds of uh, fight videos and he broke them down to how long did they last from the first, basically the first punch until it was over. And I think he said something like 60% of them were over in less than 15 seconds. But there were some <laughs> that went into seven minutes, 10 minutes, sometimes up to 18 or 20 minutes or more. And mm -hmm. again, when you're surprised by the circumstances of life, you have no idea. You know, you might have to fight for 30 seconds then run for 50 yards. There might be another fight. I mean, it could happen any number of ways. Um, mm -hmm. And to me, I've seen people that come in that are very, very fit and they use, they explode with all that energy, even though their, their fitness level is high, they'll burn out very quickly, especially if they let the adrenaline start to come in. Cause that Absolutely. adrenaline will exhaust you like nothing. And uh, it's, it's crazy, but if you can manage that and keep, be able to keep going, you're the one with gas in the tank when everybody else has run out. Like to me, that is, that fulfills that priority of you survive the fight. You may not win it, but if you survive it, you've, you know, first one is avoid a fight. Second one, survive it and then end it. If you can be the yeah. one to end it, that's, that's what we're looking for. One of, one of the best examples of Aikido I can give I've, I've got two really good examples and mm -hmm. um, one of my students he was he came out of his work in Glasgow and he was mm -hmm. waiting at the bus stop for his bus to go home and a couple of the local uh, idiots started harassing him and they started kind of coming in to push him and they mm -hmm. said it was so strange he says I remembered what he taught me he says I just I focused on just breathing and I stayed in just basic posture. He just extended his hands and he just kept moving from side to side, not letting them get behind him. He says, and, and it, it, it started to become clear they were only out for a, a kind of wind up, but mm -hmm. they just wanted to noise someone up. He says, but he said, I, I must have been doing this for about a minute, a minute and a half, and they were getting really agitated. Mm -hmm. And then that minute and a half bought me enough time that just by happenstance, a police car came around the corner and mm -hmm. it saw what was happening and stopped and the two boys ran off. And the police got out, they asked him if he was all right. He said, yeah, fine. He says they were just pushing folk about. There was a woman there as well. She was quite upset. And what he did was he tried to get himself between the women and the youths, you know. Mm -hmm. They were just, we, we call them Neds in Glasgow. They're just little mouthy 
vampots that just, you know, like to harass people. Mm. Uh, they're usually armed as well, I should say, but in this case, they weren't. But mm. he said, I just, I kept my head, I kept focus. He says, I just kept breathing and I just kept buying time with the hope that something was going to happen. He says, and it did. Mm -hmm. And that was his strategy. He took and it worked, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, that, that worked great for him because he, he chose a strategy suitable for his environment. And that's how we try and train. Another one of my students, it was, it was actually a fellow showdown at the time. He was out in a club or a bar. And uh, <laughs> this, this one's a bit on PC at times, but it's what he did. And he was out with one of his friends and he went up to the bar, he got two pints, he turned and was a big, big gorilla guy beside him, turned at the same time. And Alan's drink went over this guy's front. <laughs> so the guy immediately pushed him into someone else. And Alan's brain started to go a bit haywire. And he thought, no, I'm not having this, not here. Too crowded, no room, nothing to do. <laughs> so what he did was, he went, he started holding his face and he went, mm, and started shaking back and forward. His friend came over, looked at the big gorilla and said, look what you've done, it's his birthday. The big guy immediately changed. He just went, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't realise he had special needs. Can I buy you both a drink? And the fella's like, no, I'm just going to take him out. And Alan's like, ah, all the way outside. He says, we got outside and we <laughs> ran like hell. And I said, that's some of the best Aikido I've ever heard of. Because he just, he played the scenario. And some people would look at that and go, what a coward, he didn't square up. There's no point squaring up to a fight. You're not going to win. Right. You know, this, this, this guy had hands. What a fight you don't need to fight. And I, I mean, think there's... you don't need to fight over a yeah. bit of spilt beer. You know, right. he used his sense, he kept his head, and to me, that's training for reality. And some people mm -hmm. might not like that. What Richie did at the bus stop, that's training for reality. Something buying time is your best option. That's mm -hmm. training for reality. It's not about being Bruce Bloody Lee and jumping about and kicking people in the face and knocking them out. Mm -hmm. That's ego. Right. That's ego. And ego will get you killed. 99 times out of 100. You know, this you know, uh, about, a, about a week or two ago, I, I brought a friend of mine in who uh, we work with grappling and he's a very experienced wrestler and a police officer. And uh, we were working a little bit and I asked my students, do you have any questions for him? And, and uh, they said, yeah, you know, you, you've, have you ever had any encounters with a knife? And he says, yes, I have. I've had several and I've survived all of them. And of course, they, they, they were fascinated. Well, what, what did you do? And he says, the first thing I need to tell you is they did not look like, and he grabbed a training knife and held it out, says, you know, it did not look like that. It almost always was, I see somebody go putting their hand in their pocket or in their belt loop, and I basically grab them and tackle them and take them down. But to me, this comes back to your point earlier of your situational awareness. You, it, knives, and uh, I could go on about Aikido and knife work because it's one of my pet peeves. Um, but the reality of, in this case, somebody starts to draw a knife on you or starts to draw a weapon, that is your moment where you have to decide either beat feet or deal with them rather than waiting for a knife to come out and be held at your throat or be stabbing or cutting at you or what have you. And, and I think looking at how violence tends to go is something that any martial art needs to look objectively at. How does it really work and how do we effectively deal with it rather than say we're going to have a contrived attack and then a contrived defense and we're going to play this little choreography game where, mm -hmm. you know, 
we've made our imaginary world the way we would want it and the way that it works successfully to convince students that their art is effective. And I guess that's that's the part to chip away at and say, all right, let's let's adjust the model and let's look at, at how we do this and apply the, the principles of Aikido, which I love towards all right how do we stop this from being going south and and intercepting it early i think is is the key of what my friend pointed out like this is how a police officer survives getting mm -hmm. not, you know, not getting stabbed is he is he uses the shoto seizu control the first move mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he doesn't wait for that knife to come out he'll get it before it before the hand yeah. comes out of the pocket or what, what have you absolutely yeah and he's <clears throat> he's making a judgment call that that person is reaching for a weapon and he is well within his rights, particularly as a police officer, to mm -hmm. engage and control, particularly if he's asked them, please keep your hands still. If you've mm -hmm. said, you know, if you said, please keep your hand by your side where I can see them, they start reaching for a pocket, you're well within your rights at that point to mm -hmm. make a, an immediate threat assessment. This guy's going to do something, mm -hmm. you know, and then take action against that as a police officer. I can understand mm -hmm. that perfectly well. Mm -hmm. And it, it also brings to light something that a lot of people forget. And what I don't see an awful lot of and many of the people that I train with at courses and things like that over the years is Aikido is a very ballsy martial art. You have to be all in in order for the techniques to work. You can't sit back and let the techniques come to you. Irame is one of the Absolutely very incredible You should be entering into the attack to prevent it. In fact, is it a... Westbrook and Ratty, the Aikido in the Dynamic Sphere, they hit on a really good martial principle. I think they called it the unified impact point or something like that, unified point of impact. And that if someone is going to attack you or throw a strike at you, in their mind, their brain has already determined distance, speed, and timing required to make contact. In order for you to survive that attack, you have to break that cycle of implementation that their brain has already set up even before they've attempted to swing the punch. Mm -hmm. So what that means is changing distance. And if anyone ever gets the chance to train with me, you'll see that I am very big on the Irimi movement. It's mm -hmm. all about getting in and closing the distance. If you can close the distance down, you get into a very close space where you still have your utility, but you're taking out several of your opponent's attacking factors all in one. You're taking out the capability to swing large punches and you're taking out the capability to swing strong kicks. You're still exposed to knees and elbows, but that's great. That's where Aikido works in close. We seem to forget that in these big sweeping movements that we see a lot. That's demonstration Aikido. And unfortunately, that's what seems to dominate the stage whenever people look at Aikido. They need to understand the difference between demonstrative Aikido and applied Aikido and technical Aikido, they're all very different things. But for me, that Irimi movement is king. Then the Irimi Tenkan becomes even more important because mm -hmm. that first movement, just like moving in Tenshinagi or even just moving in with the edge of your hand against a shoulder, with if I mean I'm I'm not light, I'm 17 stone, I'm a chunky lad. Mm -hmm. If I can move my whole body in and get 17 stone to collide with your shoulder joint as you pull a punch back, you're not recovering from that for a couple of seconds. Mm -hmm. You know, if I can make that connection across the throat as I'm doing that to move in for uh, early entry movements for, again, Tenshinage or Kaitenage, for example, then mm -hmm. I'm winning at this point. Yeah. But if I stand you'll take, by... You'll take the posture of the skeleton way. Yeah, absolutely. You completely break the posture. And it's all about biomechanics. 
your opponent can't throw a punch when their posture's off center or they can't throw a strong punch. By breaking their structural stability, you take the upper hand and that requires, I'm going to use the term and I don't mean it in a male sense, that requires balls. That requires you to jump in and get in there. You have to move in in a controlled, defined fashion using your, your thighs, your calves and your hips to generate your power, not letting your body lag behind and being directly involved in the attack, you know, and get straight in there. You have to decide to end it. And yeah, again, it's a very assertive mindset. Uh, it's not a passive one. Yeah, um, I still you know, should I, not have a massive mindset, and unfortunately, it does. But mm -hmm. if you ever watch some of the the good footage of Osense back in his day, he was mm -hmm. never holding back. As, as an older man, yes, of course, yes, because he's older. His body's not moving the same, and it, the students were respecting him. Mm -hmm. If you know what I mean, oh, you yeah. know. And the same thing happens in a lot of the, you know, you, you see it in a lot of the courses. If you look at any Nike Kai courses online, oh God, they're dire. I mean, what you see is demonstration. Aikido is pretty poor as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's all just people. You can show respect to an instructor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if, you know, my instructor trained with Chiba. If anyone tried to dance around Chiba, I would have punched him in the face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because back, yeah. back in his younger days, he just didn't tolerate it. It was an insult to do mm -hmm. that to someone of that stature. You, mm -hmm. you know, but nowadays it all seems to be people just prancing about around each other out of respect for not, you know, I don't want to get in your personal space, Sensei. I don't want to hurt you, Sensei. You're not going to mm -hmm. hurt me. You're not going to get in my personal space. You're offending me by not by not attacking properly because mm -hmm. I am offended that you don't think I can cope with it. You know, and that's, sure. the, that's the regime I was brought up in, particularly in the karate all the, and in judo especially. Could you imagine judo if, not, if everyone respected their personal space? <laughs> and then try and throw it. It doesn't work. Right. Just, you know, and this yeah. is what happens, you know, and this is where some of the more kind of modernist uh, other martial arts, things like BJJ come in quite nicely because you're, 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 you're always in their personal space, you know, mm -hmm. takes, and if we can look at why those types of things, not just are popular, but why they work, it's because those guys are in permanent irimi mode. They are and mm -hmm. doing irimi all the time straight in. Everyone's in each other's faces, and that's what you're wanting. Now, again, people don't come to Aikido to learn martial arts all the time. Some people just want to come to learn something. Some people come for a social side. That's fine, as long as you are open and upfront about the way you want to train. If you want to train from a perspective where I just want to learn a technical martial art, you know, I don't like violence. I just, I just want, I just like doing the motions. That's fine. Train at that level. You know, I, I will never force training on anyone that doesn't want to train with a certain level of intensity or focus. Mm -hmm. That's not correct. You know, and if people come in and they just, I've, I've got a couple of guys like that. They're technically superb. They are first dance, second dance in every aspect of the world, technically superb. But when the brown stuff started hitting the worldly thing out in the real world, I would be the first person to push them into attacks and just tell them to go home. Because what they do will have no applicability whatsoever to the world round about them. Right. But they are technically excellent. You know, one mean, thing is you as you talked about the intercepting part, and I think that this plays into that mindset, which is the the intercept. Bruce Lee named his Jeet Kune Do the way of the intercepting fist. And as I understand mm -hmm. it, when he created Jin Fan Kung Fu, mm -hmm. he admitted that it was a it was a pretty intricate style that 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 took a lot of high. It was a high technical ability kind of mm -hmm. art. It took a long time to train it. His goal with Jeet Kune Do was to condense it, to make it more 
direct and easier to learn for people that didn't want to have to train 10 years to get mm -hmm. art. He wanted something that was direct. And the more you see a principle echoed in other, other areas, to me, the more universal it is. And the idea of interception or intercepting something before it comes to you, I think is a solid, it's, it's in every strategy. It's in mm -hmm. all military strategy. You don't want to wait for yeah. a big problem and then try to deal with it. You want to catch it early and, and, and intercept. And I think, you know, a lot of people look at Bruce Lee and how fast he was. They say, well, yeah, but he was so fast he could intercept everything. But when you take a step back and you look at violence starting to form and you intercede early, it's easier to solve that problem than waiting until it's, you know, yeah. The boulders already rolling down the hill over your head. Um, yeah, that's a philosophy so, for life, right there. Yes. When you see a problem, catch it early. Do you know mm -hmm. that's life? That's just we have literally just sorted life. Take note, everyone. We've sorted your life. If you see a problem, <laughs> that's right. You heard it here first. Not get any worse. You know, yep. deal with it. <laughs> so yeah, but that's it. That and that is that's what the martial arts are about. It's about recognizing threat problems moving in to meet them and resolving them. Right. You know, and that's when Aikido lends itself particularly well because, but only if, if it's actually taught in that manner. Yeah. And, and I think that, that doing it in the most elegant and efficient manner is, is the beauty of, of Aikido. You are not just using maximum firepower and the heaviest, uh, using maximum violence to, to achieve that end. You're using, you know, maximum efficiency. And I really like Judo's mantra of, what was it? Um, minimal effort for maximum effect, or something of <laughs> something of that nature. I I adore that, and I and I really think that that fits Aikido as well. Like we, <laughs> we don't want it to be more intricate, more athletic, using energy you don't need or wasting it. It should be elegant and direct, and get end the violence as quickly as possible. Um, <laughs> I, I guess that's just my opinion. That we all have opinions of how how Aikido should work, but I think. Ultimately, that is that is the beautiful strategy of no matter what problem you solve, why spend more money on it than you need to or spend more time on it than you need to or have it go longer, get it done quick as efficiently and move yeah. on. And so. there, there are schools and dojo out there that, that do what is effectively, it's basically, you know, Aiki yoga. Mm -hmm. you, you know, what the style they teach is very soft. The style that they do is very soft. There is no... Mm -hmm focus or intent on dealing with attacking. It's all to do with body movement and, you know, perhaps a bit of conditioning, perhaps a bit of exercise, all of that kind of thing. You know, again, I have no issues at all with all of that, provided that's that they are explicitly identifying that's what they do, that what they're doing is a technical martial art only. You know, and it's uh, and this is where, unfortunately, with the world around us and with the, uh, you know, the, the, the rise of YouTube and video coverage of stuff online, people now only believe, I mean, I know lots of folk who query me about Aikido, why, why do you like this so much? What does it give you? And I tell them, Aikido gives me everything I put into it. Mm -hmm. That's it what it gives me. It gives me everything I put into it and 100% more back, you know, mm -hmm. because that's how I like to train. But not everybody likes to train that way. So it's, but unfortunately with the kind of, you know, a lot of what you see out there now is pretty bad. And it it, it's not bad in terms, it's bad in terms of how it's presented, not what mm -hmm. they're doing. 
Oh, don't get me wrong. Some of it is bad. Yeah, actually. <laughs> Indeed, both some of those are problems. I, I cannot begin to tell you what some of it is because I'm, I'm being polite at the moment. But uh, yeah, uh, some of it is atrocious. And mm. some of it is just like, what, you know, WTF? What is that? And then what really annoys me is but we all get tarred with that same brush. And sure. there are a lot of guys out there in the world trying to do the best they can to mm-hmm. redress this balance yourself. You, you know, uh, been been one of them. Lots of people out there. And what is also annoying for me is Aikido bashing now seems to be the popular thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, that's true. Uh, I was chatting with someone the other day uh, via email, and they said they're, they're pretty sure that's a remit for some BJJ schools to get your blue belt, you have to show that you've at least gone on to five forums and bashed some Aikido people about how it doesn't work in the street. Uh, <laughs> and that's terrible. I'm, I'm not picking on BJJ for doing that. I'm just part of a conversation. But, sure. um, and now it's all coming round. It's, I mean, there's now even crazy claims. You know, mm-hmm. you were mentioning Bruce Lee a wee while back. It's like folk are saying, oh, he, he, he was a fake because mm-hmm. there's no videos of him. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, but there, there were no videos. People didn't video people back then. You know, there were no video phones. Right. The video does not make reality. And this is one of the other things that gets us back into this unsolvable problem. People are wanting to see Aikido in reality, in a video, when what's probably, the, the, as you put earlier with the, uh, the, the guy going through his training mm-hmm. uh, that went through someone, you wouldn't recognise that as Aikido. You might, I might. We might see a Tenshinagi, but mm-hmm. if you played that video back to someone, they wouldn't recognise that as Aikido, but mm-hmm. we do. Right. And so the ignorance isn't necessarily to do with the fact that the art doesn't work. A lot of it's ignorance in the eyes of the beholder, that mm-hmm. what they're seeing, they don't understand the principles of what they're seeing. And Aikido mm-hmm. is a set of solid principles and foundation principles about how to move your body and how to focus your mind and focus your attitude into maximum effort for minimum effect just as you said and they won't see that all they want to see is flashy Tekken style moves you know Nina Williams tying guys up in knots on the ground and snapping Mm -hmm. their arm like a twig doesn't that's where they can go watch a John Wick movie and see all of that absolutely until they got up off martial art violence porn really yeah that's what it is. It's, it's, they want to be entertained. Until you do that and go up off the ground and you realise that you, you fought in an alleyway and there's now a syringe in your neck. Well, maybe that'll be our next episode is the uh, the unsolvable marketing problem of Aikido. The unsolvable the... marketing problem. That's, the <laughs> that's right. Uh, Education is a big thing, I think. You know, yep. a, a, lot, a lot, lot of this. But uh, it's also, it's now, I see it's sad it's now become fashionable to lambast it and laugh at it. Sure. But don't get well, wrong. and to be fair, Aikido does have its share of clowns and charlatans. Oh yeah, that's what I was that going to say. Yeah, a lot of there is pretty poor. You know, and, and, and a lot of arts have them. You know, we're certainly not mm-hmm. the only one, and and that's kind of why I like thing. having these conversations because I want to. Th- this is not an entertainment show. This is an education show for people that are mm-hmm. that want to get into improving their art, uh, expanding their horizons for how to do it. And, you know, I love that we covered sort of how to look at this. And, and I, there was one question that I had that I wanted to do before we wrap up. And that is for people that, that think, okay, to train for realism, I need to do a percentage of my training or my, or my classes as combatives. And, and maybe do I need to turn 100% of my class or of, of my curriculum into some sort of combatives? And what I want to share with people is that, firstly, no, you don't. Um, when I started out, I, I chose maybe like 10, 20% maybe where I worked in some of the combative stuff that I had learned. 
as I started doing that more than 10, 12 years ago, what I noticed was, even though that's only a small portion of the curriculum, because we do 10 con steps and Taino Henko and, and all of this mm -hmm. that stuff, as you do it, what you learn within that combative side starts to creep into everything you do and it starts honing your Aikido and making everything you do more efficient, more effective, more applicable to real situations. It's, it's less dojo sterile and more practical and, and it's a process. It's not a, oh, I, I just need to find this magical way of doing this technique that I haven't learned before. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a process and it will always be going on. It's still going on. I'm thrilled to keep learning and finding out more about how practical application is affecting and improving my Aikido. It's, it's helping me make it more efficient where making smarter decisions are just habit. I still, uh, still strive for that efficiency, maximum efficiency with the least amount of risk. I, want to, I really don't want to get hit at all. And I want to improve my odds of not getting hit while being able to intercede and end violence against me. Um, mm -hmm. All of that stuff works together. It's not like a, we need to throw some combatives into our curriculum. It will actually start to improve everything across the board. That's my, the, my experience um, mm -hmm. with bringing stuff like that in. And, and I, I do get people's hesitance like, oh my God, if I bring, bring in this more real world stuff, is it going to destroy the, the beauty of Aikido? I don't think it will. I think the aesthetic will change a little bit, but the fact that it is practical and reliable will make it a much stronger art that people will love even more. The practitioners will, will trust it and adore it and not have that lingering doubt question of, well, would this actually work or, or have them say, all right, no, it won't work and have that, that trust issue with their own art. I, it breaks my heart to see Aikidoists who love the art say, well, yeah, but it's useless like how yeah. can you uh, yeah that's yeah that that, that whole useless, useless thing that that useless thing that's like saying that, that's such generic labeling and we all know in the real world you cannot place a generic label on anything you know mm -hmm. you, you know that's like uh if you know if if you know someone whose husband cheated on their wife you know all men mm -hmm. are cheaters do you know it, it's not true do you know what I mean? Right. It's like no, and just because or the institution someone, of marriage is is destructive or or it's destructive, or bad. yeah, or it never works. You, you, right. you, you, you know, it's generic labeling doesn't work. So for someone to say that Aikido is useless is is ridiculous because what that shows is is a lack of maturity in their understanding of their own statements. Because no, not every situation has a clear outcome. To say that something is useless is like saying like you know. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure back in the caveman days they had this discussion about round wheels versus square wheels. You, you know, those, <laughs> those round wheels roll downhill, they're all useless. Uh, right. Yeah, but they go uphill so much better. And mm -hmm. um, it's trying to apply that type of logic across the board. I, 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 yeah, I find it despairing and I also find it ignorant, you know, mm -hmm. because it just shows a complete lack of understanding, not just of what they're talking about, but also a, a kind of a lack of wanting to understand that there could be situations where this stuff is usable. Tonight, we've talked about a ton of situations where what you learn in an Aikido dojo can be applied. Therefore, mm -hmm. to say it's useless is not. If you put yourself into, I'm just trying to think of an example. If I threw myself into an MMA fight without training for it for four months, five months in advance, 
and trying to apply Ikkyo or Kotegaish to somebody wearing MMA gloves, you know, who's trying to bash my face off the canvas, that would be useless. But the body movement wouldn't be. I could still apply my body movement to that, but to just jump in there and try and do something like that, that's that's ridiculous. That's not saying that your martial art is useless. That's saying that you've put yourself in a ridiculous situation, for example, you know? And there seems to be this need for Aikido to try to prove itself by engaging with that particular environment, you know? Mm -hmm. And it, it, I've, I've noticed a rise in that recently. You know, someone said that to me. I guess it would be, you know, yeah, trying to trying to evaluate the, the uh, usefulness of a pickup truck by seeing if it could compete in a NASCAR race. Exactly. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. Right. And invariably, what we do in Aikido is we look at the whole concept of the art. There's always something from that that you can apply to any given situation, whether it's the de-escalation techniques, whether it's the body movement, like my student did at the bus stop. You know, he hadn't had a lot of training. He'd only been training for about a year, but he was still mm -hmm. able to keep his mind, applying those co breathing principles to keep your mind clear so that you don't make stupid mistakes. That's not useless. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. the technical martial arts stuff, you can't apply that into a given situation. You know, mm -hmm. if, I mean, I, I brought an example up once with someone is that I can do all the Aikido I want, but if I go into a boxing ring, and I've got 14 ounce gloves on my hands. I can't do any of my techniques with my hands covered with boxing gloves, you know? Right. So mm -hmm. I'm going to get beat. That doesn't mean that what I learn is useless. It just means in that situation that I have placed myself, what I'm trying to do is not applicable. Right. You know, so I, I failed mm -hmm. my art by not adapting to the new environment. Whereas mm -hmm. what I should have done was go in with my Aikido principles and adapted the new boxing style. You know, I didn't mm -hmm. do that. In that circumstance, this hasn't happened. This is what we're saying to someone. I would not have done that. Therefore, that would have been a problem. Therefore, it was my interpretation of what I needed to do that was useless, not the art itself. You know, right. there's always something we can take from it. But it's it's really important that we understand that, and I keep hitting home with this, technical Aikido, applied Aikido, you know, and even, you know, kata-style-based Aikido. There's so many different variances of how people train. Mm -hmm. To label an art is useless because one, two, three, or a thousand people online trying to do stuff and it looks ridiculous, you just can't do it. You, you, you know, mm -hmm. as let's say, you know, all Ford cars are rubbish because you bought one that broke down. It doesn't work that way. You know, mm -hmm. certainly there are a huge amount of people who only train in technical Aikido, mm -hmm. you know, and therefore for them to try to apply that technicality in a ring scenario or a combative or a contested scenario, it's not going to work. They would need to go away, rethink what they do, ask themselves why they're doing that in the first place, and then go back and change it. Yeah. You know, and then make their changes based on that. And it's, you know, I've had guys, I've got a couple of students that have gone on to do mother martial arts, they've gone into BJJ after Aikido. Yeah, no, because I'd, I'd said to them, do you do anything else? No, well, you might want to do something else because I'm pretty sure you're looking for a complete martial art. There's no such thing. There are gaps in Aikido. If you want to do groundwork, go and do BJJ, but train here at the same time. Bring some of it in. Let me see it. Let's see what we can use. You know, we can bring it into Suwariwaza training, for example. Well, and, and I also, I like what you how you split up the, the technical and the applied. Um, one thing to consider, because I know there's a lot of people in Aikido that, that just love the technical stuff and that they adore yeah. it. They have fun training it. 
which is cool, but they often think that the, the, learn, the training, the applied stuff is not fun. And it really is. I, in fact, yeah, I, think it's, I think it's a lot more fun than training the technical, which I like, I like focusing on the technical because when I used to compete, the, the better technical fighter would often have an advantage. The one who was sloppy and their technique was not mm -hmm. very good would have would struggle so as you as you want to succeed improving your technical ability is part of the the formula mm -hmm. but it's it's not every you can't just train in technical and and like you said earlier and expect to succeed but the the, the intangible stuff that you you use to kind of glue all of your the technique and the, the movement and strategy all that together Developing that and work and working and training and improving it is tremendously fun. Yeah, I have a and great you know, time. Oh, I mean, it's and some people might think, well, it's very frustrating. In fact, I feel like technical work is more frustrating to, because mm -hmm. you have that really hair splitting. No, you have to be exactly in this position. You have to move exactly this way. To me, that's a bit more frustrating than the working on that application part. That's where the fun yeah. really starts yeah. to happen. Uh, um, I, had a, I had an experience so, as a second Dan where we were doing basic with a, a gentleman coming up for a course and we're doing basic cuts with the Balkan and do you, do you remember the original Conan the Barbarian where he's learning to cut with a sword and the wee Japanese man comes up and goes mur, 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 and he moves his sword like that oh sure that's what this guy did with me okay you know and he's like oh not there there and I was like what there or there and he went no there and I kept that going there, no there, yeah. oh there, oh, oh there. <laughs> I was all right, sorry, sorry. I, I missed the minutia of that two millimeters of difference. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh dear God, it was the most boring course. Two days, one yeah. full, one full day on. Had, had I known this, I would never have let him near us. One full day of show minucci. Oh yeah. And I was yep. like, I was going crazy at the end of it. It, my spine was killing me. My lower back was killing me because we'd just been standing and to change all our postures. And it was this whole left foot, right mm -hmm. angled posture. You, you know the thing that you... a lot. Right. One, one of the parts that grinds my gears just briefly is um, the people that don't understand that the weapons training in Aikido should complement the bodywork. Mm -hmm. And they look at the weapons training as though it's it's a form of weapon. It's a weapon style in itself. It's not. Mm -hmm. So they hold their body in a completely different position from what they do when they're actually doing their body movement. This was mm -hmm. one of these guys. And okay. it was just nothing matched, but it was all very technical. And mm -hmm. it was the most boring thing ever. Uh, and that, But that was his bag. That's what he did. And mm -hmm. what I find is people who, and I'm, I'm probably going to upset a lot of people saying this, and I don't care. I'll be honest. Uh, a lot of people like the technical aspect because it strokes the ego quite a bit. Mm -hmm. There's no, at no point do you ever feel as though you're defeated or you could have done better mm -hmm. when you only do technical training. And that's why I do like a certain element of the competitive aspect and I also like a certain element of the resisted aspect because mm -hmm. if you only do technical training that means your partner is only moving in a certain way and everything's nice and it's in its cabinets it's little filing cabinets and everything's precise and the world is perfect and as it should be mm -hmm. now I've got a couple of students over the years who have had autistic spectrum disorder and they only really respond to technical training one was quite far into the spectrum that's an mm -hmm. entirely different state of affairs. Mm 
I respected that and he only ever trained with someone and whoever trained with him, I told them, this guy doesn't like, make sure everything's exactly where it needs to be because otherwise he's going to tell you, no, your hand shouldn't be there, it should be here. Mm-hmm. That was a completely different scenario. That was someone who had a genuine medical condition and we respected that and we worked with him. And he trained with us for about eight, nine years before he moved away and he was great. Sure. But at the end of the day, a lot of people like it because it's safe and mm-hmm. they don't feel as though there's any threat to their ego and they can just they can feel good about themselves with, yep. without the threat of having to stop and look and go, I'm really bad at this. A lot you, of people you can kind of look at look at it like the uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, with the bathwater being the failure, the stuff that's unpleasant. You don't like the, that part, but there's no joy like seeing you 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 put together your technical stuff, the strategy stuff, the smart decisions, the application, and then having it work, having you succeed. Like that is a a sublime joy, and to me, mm. that's the joy part of training. And when you train, it's not like you're just getting beaten up for you know an hour and a half at a time you should be tasting okay here's stuff that i get to work here's stuff where i struggle and then you keep improving yourself so you're getting those those wins those those uh successes like that's the to me the joy of training and to give that up just to get to technical where all you're really looking at is praise for your from your instructor because that's the only feedback you get is your instructor says yes you did this well very good And I've found Tristan as well, personally, that Mm -hmm. also it's not just, see, once they get to a certain level, it's, it's, it's that they stop looking at it from the instructor and start looking at it from their peers. Mm -hmm. And that's why they don't step out of that environment. That's such and such. They do really good technical training for them to then step down off that pedestal and put themselves into situations where they're going to be really bad for a couple Mm -hmm. of years. Sometimes it's too big an ego drop and a lot of people don't want to do that. They don't want to be seen as that. Now, me, personally, I don't mind that. I don't mind going right back to grassroots and starting again. And that's what I've been doing with the applied stuff is I've stopped and taken a look at it and thought, right, how can we make this? How can we make Aikido even better mm-hmm. by preserving the traditions, by preserving the technical work, by preserving the kata work, by preserving the partner work, by adding in the thing that is missing and it's only missing because I believe when the majority of people came to train with O-Sensei, he didn't need to do this stuff because they all were accomplished black belts. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't have to show these guys how to do punches and kicks and grapples and chokes and locks because they knew it already. You know, what I, he was they probably was had a great content. deal of the, the Budo spirit, the martial spirit. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. They would have carried all this in with them. So they didn't need to be trained up in all that and to be directed and focused and to understand what happened. These guys came, a lot of the guys he trained with were hardcore. Mm-hmm. They were pretty hard people back in the day, you know, right. back in the early formation days. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he had to step up to the plate. What he was teaching was concepts that take out the death and destruction part of it and introduce something that allows for a more fluid and more dynamic scenario, mm-hmm. you know, based on the techniques that O-Sensei learned. That's the way I always see Aikido. It was never designed to be this passive, mousy, you know, almost kind of like, I'm going to use the term sympathetic art. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think it was ever designed to be this. Uh, but yeah, I don't been, think so either. It's lost its right. way. 
You know, it's mm -hmm. lost its way. And as O-Sensei aged, his techniques developed and changed. And everyone that trained with him, they went off and assumed that that's all there was. Mm -hmm. What I've been shown is what I'm going to take off and do. And that's how we've now got, you know, um, all these different styles of Aikido. You know, we've got all these different styles and formations because they all, they, they're only representations of, of O-Sensei's journey from the early days in the 30s through to him passing away in the, in the late 60s. That's mm -hmm. only an interpretation of his journey. It's nothing to do with the training aspect. People, so in order to understand the, the true message of Aikido, look at all the styles, like loose threads, and pull them together, and then maybe you'll understand what O-Sensei was working from all those years to try and make a picture. It's like a jigsaw. Iwama style gives you a bit of that. You know, uh, Kiyai style gives you a little bit of that. You know, traditional Aikikai style gives you a little bit of that. You know, a little bit of hardness, let's take Shioda, bang, plant him in there, that's what it looked like back then. Let's look at the Ushibaha Aikibujutsu, bang, that's what that looked like, plug that in. What was this individual's vision going forward? And how, how did it structure itself, you, you know? And cut through all the myth and legend that a lot of authors have written about, about him over the years, and just look at him as a human being. You know, it's, uh, there's too many people get caught up in all this weird mysticism around Aikido and O-Sensei dodging bullets like Leroy Green in The Last Dragon, do you know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> well, and that's why I wanted to, to have this discussion about, you know, how do we look at our training and not have to demand that it be the ultimate reality, but we have, hmm. I think, segmenting it into the, the components or the, the traits that you want to develop in a superb martial artist and train them that way and then start to combine mm -hmm. them. Um, I think we've had a, a really great discussion, Stephen, but I'll let yeah. you, if you have any, any thoughts you want to wrap up on, we can kind of do that. And, uh, I know we've had a over, I think, hour 40 minutes. We've been really Wow, crazy, really? So. Oh, yeah, um, time flies. Sorry, everyone. Uh, as I say to my psychologist, it's not getting me to start talking, it's getting me to shut up, it's the problem. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think it's, uh, we've had a great discussion, Tristan, thanks for having me here. Uh, You're welcome. I hope, I hope what we say, what, what we've gone over, people don't take too much offence to it, but it maybe makes them think a little bit about things. You, you know, is that Aikido, I think, is one of the best martial arts out there. It's, it's not perfect, it has gaps, but it teaches us all the principles that we need to be effective human beings and effect, not just effective martial artists. And it, it teaches us a lot of great principles and you know methods for learning to control ourselves. I always tell my students, you can't control your opponent until you learn to control yourself. And that's the fundamental aspect of Aikido and what it means. In this world, as we're coming out of the pandemic and COVID and everyone's feeling a little bit lost and a little bit kind of out of sorts and not in touch with what's going on, if they haven't tried Aikido, find yourself a really good club, get involved, go along, because this world needs Aikido and the style of training and message that it produces. Aikido is not just an effective martial art on its own. It can also enhance your other martial training by introducing new principles, new techniques, new philosophy, new thought, and make you look at yourself in a different way. That's the thing that I take most from Aikido. It's not about being the perfect martial artist. It's about being a better human being. And let's face it, that's, this world could do with a few more better human beings now. Absolutely. That's a well said. Great point to, to wrap this up on. So thank you very much again, Stephen, for coming on. This is probably one of my favorite discussions of all that I've had on the show. So I uh, look forward to having you back again. Yeah, anytime at all. It's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Will do. Take care.
Take care. Bye. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Stay tuned for more episodes. I've got some great stuff on the way very soon. In the meantime, enjoy your training.